I'm looking at the reconciliation process in Canada uh, between the government and First Nations and also grassroots movements mm. for First Nations. And Meg, you're looking at the music, is it? Uh, yeah, I'm looking into uh, Aboriginal music and uh, themes of social change in Vancouver. Oh. And how about you, Gernardi? I'm looking at Maggie and Jamie and Woody Morrison. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah you're, so both of you come from Ohio? It's true. Mm. Yeah, we were just talking about the role that Ohio has played in the um, history of North America. And... Uh, Probably people don't know a lot of it. You know, the so-called French and Indian Wars that went on for about 30 years was fought over Ohio because of the rich farmland of the Ohio Valley. And people don't know that the Royal Proclamation of 1761 and 1763 was issued by the king to keep British subjects from going west of the headwaters of rivers flowing into the Atlantic Ocean, which was intended to keep them out of the Ohio Valley. Hi, welcome to the Arts Report for July 31st, 2013. Tonight we'll talk to Flora, who will update us on week two of the Queer Arts Festival and tell us about the new lesbian opera, When the Sun Comes Out. I'll tell you about the historic Powell Street Festival and the Early Music Society presents Beyond the Labyrinth in Search of John Dowland. And we have a special segment on books. Hi, I'm your host for tonight on CITR 101.9 FM. My name is Sarah Lapsley, and it's good to be back. So stick around for the next hour. We've got lots of good stuff. And I usually play a song just before the Arts Report comes on, and I haven't really been announcing them. So I think I'll do that from now on. That song was Bush Pilot by Superconductor, Carl Newman's first band, and they had like eight or nine guitars and they had this huge smoke machine and long hair and they'd bang their heads back in the grunge days and uh yeah that song was bush pilot and the album was heavy with puppy so it's a great day at citr as usual and i just want to thank those who helped me today usually i have some kind of mini flap um technically and so evan thank you eleanor 
Sarah Cordingly and our president, Ryan Roussel, he's got a great show on from three to four called Butter on the Bread. So books. Megan often would do book reviews and things on books, and I haven't done that. And I just realized, like, I want to do more on books. Um, I went to Victoria for my birthday. And on the way home on the ferry, I picked up a copy of BC Book World. It's like a newspaper which features tons of books published by British Columbian authors, and often their content is about British Columbia. Um, and on the very last page, a tiny thumbnail-sized photo of a book caught my eye. And it's called Haiku Moments on the Camino by Harvey Jenkins. So it's a travel diary, and he writes in haiku poetry and prose about his 800-kilometer journey across northwestern Spain. So the Camino is actually an ancient pilgrimage um, that people have been, millions of people have gone on since medieval times. And it's something that I very much want to accomplish in my lifetime, the old bucket list, provided there is luxurious accommodation on the way. Um, so it starts in France, and people walk through northern Spain um, until they get to um, Santiago de, de Compostela, which is the Church of Saint James. So the so it's known as the Camino, also translated as the Way of Saint James. His saint's day is July twenty fifth, and travelers walk along the route. It's now named a World Heritage Site. Um, to the Santiago de Compostela, this beautiful cathedral, and his remains are supposedly buried there. So it follows an earlier Roman trade route and continues on past the cathedral to the Atlantic coast of Galatia, ending at Cape Finisterra. Um, and, and that means literally the end of the world, or land's end in Latin. Um, and at night, the Milky Way overhead seems to point the way. So the route also acquired the nickname... La Vosges, la Day, the Milky Way. Um, so the symbol of St. James is a scallop shell, and that has sort of symbolism and metaphorical meaning, um, some of which are tied to sort of stories that after St. James's death, his disciples shipped his body um, to Santiago, um, but a storm hit the ship and the body was lost to the ocean, and after some time it washed ashore, um, undamaged, covered in scallops. Um, there's a few other stories like that, um, but mostly it's a symbol of people doing the pilgrimage. They wear it as a little badge on their shirt or cape um, as they go along. Um, and so the grooves in the shell, which meet at a single point, represent the various routes pil pilgrims traveled, eventually arriving at a single destination, the tomb of St. James. Um, so, yeah, and it's a metaphor for the pilgrim themselves. As the waves of the ocean wash scallop shells up onto the shores of Galatia, God's hand also guides the pilgrims to Santiago. And it also had a practical purpose. It was the shell was the right size for gathering water to drink or from eating out of it, like a makeshift bowl. I will not be doing that when I do the pilgrimage. I will not be eating it out of it as a makeshift bowl. Um, but my mom was the one that got me interested in doing the pilgrimage. She goes to the church of St. James down in the downtown east side, and it was like the oldest church in Vancouver, actually, not in that building, but originally in its original location. Um, so when she first started talking about it, she gave me a CD by a musician called Oliver Schroer. And at the time, she told me he walked the pilgrimage and recorded this music on his violin on the way, um, along with ambient sounds en route. And then he died of leukemia a short while later. So I was very intrigued by the story, like, oh, this poor guy, you know, recorded this and then died. But it turns out when I looked into it just the other day, he's a very successful, very prolific Canadian musician, uh, recorded 10 CDs in 14 years, performed all over Europe and North America in New York's Lincoln Center, produced or performed on over 100 albums, um, recorded with artists such as Jimmy Webb, Barry Mann, Lorena McKennett, and Sylvia Tyson, um, East Coast rockers, Great Big Sea and West Coast rockers, Spirit of the West. And so he, he's sort of a fiddler violinist. Um, and so his album Camino was recorded in churches along the Camino Santiago pilgrimage trail. He walked a thousand kilometers of the trail in 2004 with his wife and two friends carrying like a portable recording studio. Um, and he carried his instrument wrapped in a sleeping bag in his backpack, quote, like my own precious relic, 
carefully packed in its requiary of socks and underwear, maybe damp underwear. Um, but it's a beautiful CD. It's like literally one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard. Um, and he died in 2007 of leukemia. Um, and I wanted to play some of it. Um, and so here's a segment from the first track called Field of Stars. Now, I've never used the CD player in the studio here, so I, I'm not going to lie. I really don't know what's going to happen, but brace yourselves. Oh, that's sweet. Isn't that exquisite? It's on my funeral playlist. The whole CD is incredible, and he often like picks up ambient sounds like bells, little cowbells, or birds singing along the trail. So if you want to know more about the Camino pilgrimage, there's lots online to read about, and check out this interesting-looking book by Harvey Jenkins, local author. It's called Haiku Moments on the Camino. You can purchase it online um, through Amazon. Okay, that's enough of that. Now, I'm on to another book. Now, this is actually, I'm doing a review of a book review. So I'll try to keep them separate when I'm talking about the actual book author and the reviewer. So I read the weekend edition of the Globe and Mail every Saturday just to keep up. Um, and I really, and I hate to say can't stand, but... Can't stand the arts lifestyle columnist Leah McLaren. She's just so like tepid 
And I, I just knew that she got a job due to a relative. And when I looked up on Wikipedia, I was right. Her mom was the editor at the Globe and Mail when she started. But is that mean? I don't know. I'm, I'm nobody. Um, so sorry, Leah. And she shares a birthday with one of my favorite rock stars, Chris Murphy, from Sloan. So um, she did a book review this weekend, and I took umbrance to it. I don't even know why. Like, there's so many more things to take umbrance to. Um, but the book she reviewed is called Amy 27, and the author is Howard Sounds. And he does autobiographical or biographical stuff on Amy Winehouse and also talks about the 27 Club. So this clatch of rock stars that all died at the age of 27. So Leah McLaren starts by saying that she's skeptical about this construct of the 27 Club. Um, and so that includes, you know, they, they talk about the big six. Brian Jones, Amy Winehouse, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison. So she says, their respective ends have been grouped together in a dubious social trend. Okay, I agree with that. And then she says she wants to, quote, plug her ears and hum a tune out of respect for the poor dead artists. How unfair to expire early and in pain and end up a half-baked statistic. Like, I'd rather end up a dead legendary rock star than a half-baked Gen X, Sex in the City, Globe and Mail columnist. But, um, I don't know. But she reads Amy 27 um, and changes her tune. So the author, Howard Sounds, engages in some number crunching and then tries to draw some parallels personality-wise between the so-called big six. So I just want to be clear, I haven't read the original book. I'm just responding to Leah's book review and the information she presented in it. So the number crunching is somewhat dubious. So... uh, Howard Sounds compiled a list of 3,463 people who had achieved fame in jazz and popular music between 1908 and 2012. So you'd see, you know, a rise in, if you think of that as a line, you see a rise in deaths as people get older. Um, But there's also spikes. So um, like more deaths at certain ages. So those are 21, 50, and 80. Um, But She doesn't say how big those spikes are. So that doesn't give us any context when um, the, like, astonishing statistic is presented. And that is that 50 out of these 3,463 people died at the age of 27. Um, So there was a spike there. 50 people died at the age of 27 as compared to 30 people in the surrounding ages. So, like... 30 people out of this sample population died at 26. 30 people of the sample population died at uh, 28. And 50 people died at 27. And so she calls this a remarkable thing. Um, But even I know, and I'm really dumb at math, that even though 50 seems almost double 30, um, actually 30 people is about 1% of the overall population, the 3,000 people. And so 50 would actually be about 1.8%. And so far, that means the astonishing remarkable spike is the difference of about 0.8%. Am I explaining this? Well, I hope so. Um, So what we're saying is it's not really that much of a trend. Um, But Leah thinks it is. And then she asked the pressing question, what is so deadly about the age of 27? And the answer, of course, is that they had so much in common. They were highly intelligent and they were rebellious bohemians. But couldn't that be said of most of the sample they were looking at, like famous jazz and popular musicians? Like, wouldn't they all be highly intelligent and um, bohemian? The original author, Howard Stone, says that the 27 Club were psychologically flawed, personality disordered, some bordering on mental illness. Well, yeah, like Cobain, Hendrix, and Winehouse were all rumored to be manic depressive. And if I recall, Jones was practically psychotic and and paranoid um, on drugs and, and perhaps paranoid not without reason because he was murdered. Didn't Frank Thoroughbred... Thoroughgood confess on his deathbed that he murdered Brian Jones. Um, not Jones didn't die of an overdose or drowning uh, as most, I don't know. So neither McLaren nor 
sounds draw any meaningful conclusions other than these these artists were involved in an epic battle between like their talents and their self-destructive impulses and so leah says quote they were too young to slow down and too old to change their self-destructive ways i don't know about that like i'm you know i don't think anybody's too old to change their self-destructive ways i'm inclined to see it as a, a socially constructed trend rather than a statistical trend, which was certainly wasn't proven in the above case. Um, and it's, I think, the result of cognitive biases. And so we're all individually and collectively, I'm just laughing because I'm just ranting on and on, prone to cognitive biases. So those are systematic deviations from a standard of rationality or good judgment. And here's just a couple that apply in this case, the availability cascade a self-reinforcing process in which a collective belief gains more and more plausibility through its increasing repetition in public discourse. So in this case, it's like, you know, there's this special group of people that die at 27 or there's some meaning behind it. And the other thing is the base rate fallacy. So the tendency to base judgments on specifics, so in this case, like kind of a group of specific people instead ignoring general statistical information like there's lots of rock stars that have died at varying ages and there's certainly lots of rock stars that you'd think would have died but didn't like Ozzy Osbourne um but anyways if there is any kind of pattern I would put it down to astrology which I suppose is you know dubious in itself but um sure enough there's a big astrological event that occurs around the age of 27 called the progressed lunar return and so an astrologer i was looking at online last night called it uh, the first lunar return club and so that they didn't survive um their lunar return where their progressed moon returns to its own place in the natal chart and so i had to look at all of their charts last night just like out of boredom um and I'm very, very, very amateurish, but looking for any patterns primarily in the eighth house, the house of sort of sex and death, um, and the planet Pluto. And I actually found a few interesting similarities. Um, three of them had the part of fortune in the eighth house. So the part of fortune means like your luck or your fate. And so I think it was Hendrix, um, Morrison, and Cobain all had the part of fortune in the eighth house. And Jones and Joplin had Neptune in the eighth house. So Neptune is a sign of sort of dissolving and addiction. So you can see its negative manifestation there. Uh, Winehouse had a weird chart. Like it was like everything's clumped into a tiny corner and it's like nothing is pulling her upward into the second half of life. Um, so overall, definite eighth house emphasis, which is scary because I have a lot of eighth house planets. So love me now while well, you still can. So in conclusion, like I have no conclusion either. Leah wasted her column space on this topic and I just wasted like, my airtime and your time, so I'm sorry. Ah, I'll move on. So I've been very fortunate to know Jean Smith for over 20 years. Um, she's an amazing woman who puts arts before anything else in her life, and it's her birthday tomorrow, born August 1st, 1959. Um, she's best known as the lead singer of the band Mechanormal, as well she is a painter, novelist, lecturer, and filmmaker, and her work explores themes of feminism and anti-authoritarianism. So she first met her bandmate in 1981, and they've been touring together pretty much nonstop since about 1986. She's released records on Kill Rockstars, Matador, K Records, among others, and she shows her paintings and published several novels. Uh, one is I Can Hear Me Fine. The other is The Ghost of Understanding, and she's published two chapbooks, The Family Swan and Other Songs, and another one in 2006 called Two Stories. I ran into her in the grocery store last week, and it was great to see her. It had maybe been 10 years. So we caught up, and she told me she had written a new novel um, called The Black Dot Museum of Political Art. And she's trying to find a publisher for it. So I was really flattered. She asked me to read it and gave me some feedback. Um, it has a or she asked me to read it and give her some feedback. So um, specifically, she wanted me to give her direction on one of the characters that lives with mental illness. So I really look forward to reading it over the weekend and hope to have her on the Arts Report soon to talk about her work. So I just wanted to play a song by Jean Smith because she is so fabulous. Um, this one's called Throw Silver. And then we'll be back uh, to talk more about the Queer Arts Festival on CITR 101.9 FM. <laughs> Thank you. 
Wide Kickoff is happening on August 1st at Fortune Sound Club, featuring humans, Dreamboat, Phil David, and Trevor Risk. Limited $10 advance tickets available online at TicketZone.com and at Zulu, Red Cat, Beat Street, High Life Records, and Pre-App. Doors at 8 p.m., concert at 9. Sponsored by CITR. The Vancouver Queer Film Festival marks 25 years of celebrating queer lives this August 15th to 25th. Featuring over 70 films from 20 countries, from Hollywood to Bollywood, drama to documentary, indie cinema to big-budget offerings, there's something for everyone. Tickets on sale July 22nd. For parties, previews, tickets and more, visit QueerFilmFestival.ca. We're back on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Arts Report, and I'm your host for tonight, Sarah Lapsley. So we are back. We are going to talk about the Queer Arts Festival. We did a lot on it last week, and we are doing more. Um, I wanted to fill you in about the opening party that I went to and the art show that's on throughout the festival at the Roundhouse Community Center. So the party was awesome. And the great thing I think about queer spaces is that you can just feel like you can just be yourself. So I felt very at home and I liked that. Um, it had definitely the feeling of an art opening with some speakers sort of formally introducing the opening of the festival. Big, beautiful, airy room, great smorgasbord. And, and the food was brought to the tables by these hot men and women who were like, nude except for sort of fishnetty things and lots of silver makeup megan our regular co-host looked so sexy in the silver mini dress she's very tied up working for the festival which is why i've been doing a little more than usual i was like my awkward self like at the party like this beautiful girl was like checking me out she had like black hair and this green dress and i did what i always do when a hot person looks at me like I averted my eyes and kind of squinched up my face and scuttled away. Why I'm single? Um, they did have beautiful live nude models who sort of posed languidly while people stood around and drew. Um, and there were a few performers. The one I saw was Robin Dreidegger Klassen, and she was a opera singer who did some aria-type songs with piano accompaniment, and she was like a total goddess. So overall, the vibe was like elegant, sophisticated, and fun. The art show was curated by Glenn Altine and Paul Wong, and I was extremely impressed by the art show. There is some fantastic art in this exhibit, and it has a clear socio-political message. Like, I like that, unlike a lot of other arts I've seen, which is sort of self-referencing, kind of circular, like it just references other art, and it doesn't apply to important issues and questions of everyday life always. So I just would highlight a few of my favorites, and I really urge you to go and see for yourself. S.D. Holman did a series of 10 huge black and white photographic portraits. Um, and I think they're part of a, like a bus stop campaign entitled Butch, Not Like Other Girls. And uh, these portraits had so much life in them. So there's like giant portraits of these butch women and some were, you know, dignified and handsome. Others were sort of teasing and inviting and humorous. It was very engaging. Uh, really liked it. Jami, Johnny Sopochek had one I really liked called Deconstruction, and it's like a fabric work. So it was like squares of a quilt sewn together, and there were blue ones that said Superman, and then there were pink ones that were like Princess Disney ones. And it's sort of really highlighting that extreme gender binary. And then he like burned up sections of the quilt, so burned out the little princess's head and this little Superman's head, like F these traditional gender roles. So loved that. Joe Average had four self-portraits. So Joe Average is a local artist, very successful. Um, he was born in 1957, and he's lived with AIDS for something like 30 years. Um, and so he did these self-portraits, photographs of himself, and he looks so emaciated in them and contemplative. And it really forces the viewer to face the reality of HIV-AIDS. Very moving. Um, I know he's a friend and favorite of CBC journalist Pamela Post. Shout out to my friend Pamela Post. One of my favorites, if not my absolute favorite, was Claude Perrault's work. Um, it was just stunning, irreverent, yet like very masterful, very old master. Um, he did two huge paintings. So one is Princess Elizabeth I, and the other is of 
you know, slightly later, Queen Elizabeth I. But he uses his own face as their face. It's very subtle, very artfully done. So his younger face is sort of slimmer, and the older face is more filled out, and he's wearing this full-blown Elizabethan ruff. So it looks very natural and dignified, yet campy at the same time. And the color scheme is sort of browns and oranges, golds, and autumn colors. And if you look closely at the fabric of the dresses, it's like a collage made of pictures of body parts, like thumbs and arms and legs and, you know. Um, the frames are like huge and ornate and gold. Um, and the one of the adults, you know, the Queen E, the first has like angels and fake gems kind of glued to the top. These paintings are $4,500 each, but I believe they will be worth much more than that someday. Um, and surely someone has purchased them by now. Um, I would if I could. They are in my imaginary art collection, along with works by Steve Kilvey, Karen Kalimnik, Gordon Smith, Jack Shadbolt, B.C. Binning, Harry Lane Worcester, Liz Knox, Shannon Oxanon, Bill Reed, and any more. Those are the highlights of my imaginary art collection. But check out Claude Perrault's work at cvp-art.com. Last but definitely not least was a series of photographs by Tufik. That's like the number two F-I-K. He's a French-born Canadian of Moroccan descent, and he's like a model or something, like tall, extremely handsome, and he uses himself as a character in his own photographs, like Cindy Sherman or, or Rodney Grant, but he has like multiple selves. Like they use one of themselves. He uses like 12 of himself. One was very thought-provoking. Um, last week I had on Chris Morrissey talking about the Rainbow Refugee Committee who sponsors people who are persecuted on the basis of their sexual orientation and help them come to Canada. It made a big impression on me. Um, and Tufik's photos, one of them reminded me of that. So there's like 12 of him in a big room. And on one side there are like four dancers around a piano and they're like in tiny pink sort of aerobic speedos and leg warmers and they're dancing and they're looking like very gay um, and they're squared off against like another six of him on the other side of the room who are dressed in like traditional white Muslim robes looking very stern and they're sort of kicking um, so you really see the juxtaposition between this very traditional patriarchal culture and, and gay culture and in the middle between these two groups is one of him the artist on his knees looking kind of average like baseball cap t-shirt and he's looking confused and he's wearing a sign that or holding a sign that says help so I think it's a very great work of art and it could be interpreted on a few levels and uh, one that I would also love to add to my imaginary collection it's $900 but it's probably already taken at this point so if you are downtown definitely check out the Transgression Now Arts Show at the Roundhouse Community Center until August 9th the gallery hours are 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. week days and 11 to 4 30 on weekends so there's still so much going on uh, at the queer arts festival and we have flora from the queer arts festival on the show or i talked to her earlier anyway to tell us what's happening um and so first we want to talk about yamataka sonic titan um, they're Canadian metal dream pop named after the Buddhist deity who's like the wrathful god who terminates death. Alaska is Chinese and Ruby is Japanese and they switch back and forth between English and Japanese lyrics. Um, and they've been just called like their major buzz called like one of the most exciting bands in the world. So uh, Flora is going to talk a little bit about that right now. Yes, yeah, Powell Street Festival is actually our co-presenter for both Yamantaka, Sonic Titan, and the opera, When the Sun Comes Out. Um, we're very excited to have them here, and yeah, that's a great quote that Now Magazine out of Toronto has claimed that they are one of the most exciting bands on the planet. Um, they're doing some different stuff. They're, they call themselves an experimental music and art collective, and uh, I think that was what drew uh, our artistic director to them, that they um, have a real visual art component along with their music. And uh, that's this Saturday, August the 3rd. So we're, yeah, we're really thrilled to be having them here, especially since they recently had to cancel their Jazz Fest performance. Um, so we're hoping that some people that uh, were looking forward to that show and, and were disappointed that they canceled will uh, realize that they're back in town and they can come, come see this concert on Saturday. 
So they do they have any like their sort of art rock? Do they have any sort of political message or statements that they're trying to make that you know of? Um, they might not that I'm aware of. Although I know that someone described their latest album as of the birth of a new culture. Cool, eh? That was Flora from the Queer Arts Festival talking about Yamantaka Sonic Titan, the birth of a new culture. Like, that's what people are saying about this band. Um, They look cool, their music is cool, and I'm going to play a bit of them now. This one is called Reverse Crystal. That was Yamantaka's Sonic Titan and their song Reverse Crystal. So they're uh, an Asian, Indigenous, and Diasporic Experimental Art and Music Collective. Aesthetically, they blend the diverse styles of Noah, Chinese opera, uh, Chinese and Japanese and First Nations mythology, black and white television, psychedelia, and rock, 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 rock operatics into a sensory feast. So you, d- you just don't want to miss it. It's August 3rd at the Roundhouse Community Theater, 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. And also another huge important event um, at the Queer Arts Festival is When the Sun Comes Out. And it's an opera that's been commissioned by the Queer Arts Festival. And Flora is going to tell us about that and also just a few other events that are happening this upcoming weekend. The story of the opera um well, yes, it was commissioned by the Queer Arts Festival um, 
by composer Leslie Ueda. And um, she teamed up with local poet Rachel Rose, who wrote the libretto. And um, I guess a synopsis of the story is that it really is about people in uh, other countries where homosexuality is uh, illegal and their struggle to identify um, with themselves and find true love and the the steps that they will take, the risks that they will take to um, to find love in those kind of oppressive uh, cultures. And it's really neat how this has come about and the director uh, this year, James Fagan Tate, um, they're really trying to make it so it's not like it's in anywhere specific. You know, he was quoted as saying, is it Iran? Is it um, someplace in Africa? Or is it in the Bible Belt of British Columbia? You know, so it's not um, really set in a specific place, but in more in that that oppressive, um, not tolerant um, culture to um, gays and lesbians. And it's about two women. One is married and um, another who kind of blows through town who ultimately fall in love um, and, and, what they, and what they're willing to do to uh, be together despite, uh, despite their circumstances. So that's the that's the world premiere of Canada's first lesbian opera, and we couldn't be more thrilled to be uh, presenting it this year. Yeah. So, what's the music like? The uh, music is um, operatic, and uh, and it's very new. I mean, this is uh, this piece is really just finished last year. Um, it was presented in a workshop performance last year, um, but I even think that some revisions. Were, were made between then and now so this is this is modern opera wow <laughs> so it's sort of sung in operatic style but the the composition might be more modern sort of in flavor yeah absolutely so um and it's a very like it's a chamber orchestra um accompanying piano uh, cello violin and flute wow it sounds wonderful Mm-hmm. And so do you have any plans, like, now that the opera is completed, are you going to put it on anywhere else? I know that that is definitely a long-term goal. Um, we really uh, hope that this this piece can, uh, can go on tour, for sure. Um, right now, we just, uh, we need to get... Uh, get these first three shows uh, underway because it uh, opens on Monday, August 5th, and runs on Wednesday the 7th and Friday the 9th, those three shows. So, uh, we'll, But I do know that uh, we are hopeful that it will, it will hit the road, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, that's great. So is there any other events coming up that you want to highlight, the Queer Arts Festival? Absolutely. Well, this this weekend really is just full of fun and exciting music. This Friday, uh, hip hop artist Kinney Star is uh, performing her uh, official CD launch concert. Um, she's put out a new album called Kiss It, and the street release date is actually not for another three weeks. But if you come to this uh, launch concert on Friday, you'll. Your ticket price actually includes a copy of the CD, and she's performing with cellist Chris Dirksen, who is uh, a phenomenal talent in her own right. And so they are, uh, who also, and who also released uh, recently released a new album called The Collapse. So, Kenny and Chris this Friday, Saturday Yamantaka Sonic Titan, Sunday the Vancouver Men Chorus are doing their big gay sing after the parade. And then Monday night is the uh, premiere of the opera. So, yeah, this whole weekend is going to be full of music and uh, some great shows all happening at the Roundhouse. Wow, and there's a writing workshop. Is that tomorrow with Karen X. Tulinski? Yeah, there is. Um, We called it Escape Artists. And um, we um, invite people to come and tell their stories, um, get a little bit of instruction and direction from Karen She's an award-winning uh, author and uh, screenwriter. So that, yeah, that's true. That's tomorrow night, uh, Thursday the 1st. 
Um, and on stage tomorrow night is a really interesting performance art piece called Reflection Refraction, where they're playing short films, and then after the short film, you see a performer basically do a, you know, a, a short performance piece that's inspired by the film. So you're getting these reflections of what's on the screen and then having a live performance. And that should be really cool as well tomorrow. <laughs> wow, that's a lot going on. That's wonderful. Yeah, there is. We still have 10 days left of the festival until August 9th. So there's uh, something, something exciting and fun happening every day. And you can check it all out on our website, QueerArtFestival.com. On Monday, August 5th, Kurt Vile and the Violators will be playing at the Rickshaw Theater. On tour to support their new release, Walking on a Pretty Days, these guys are, like, super cool. Advanced tickets available at Red Cat, Zulu, and High Life Records, or online at ticketweb.ca. Sponsored by CITR. You Old or New Testament? I think the New Testament. The question is, Pilate, remember Pilate from the New Testament? But this Pilate, he fiddled well. Yeah, no, well, just a minute, let me ask the question, then you can give me the answer, okay? Did Pilate want Jesus to be crucified? Yeah, uh, uh, this Pilate washed his hands of it. So did he want him to be crucified? Yeah. No. 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 Well, tune in every Friday afternoon, 3.30 to the night. Watch your watch, Well, find a good church. It'll help you. We're back on the Arts Report, CITR 101.9 FM. So, I want to tell you about the Early Music Society. I love early music. And I've been meaning to go to one of the Early Music Society's concerts for years. I have no excuse. Um, the Society encourages an appreciation and understanding of music in a historical content, in a historical context, rather. Um, so they perform using period instruments. And early music refers to anything that's earlier than like the 1800s or the 1700s. So they do performances and lectures, um, and in this they have sort of a like a winter season, and they also have a summer festival where they have performances and they offer workshops. Um, and I, I just love history, and I think there's no better way to go back in time than to immerse yourselves in the sounds of the time. Um, so they've got an event coming up, and it's about John Dowland. And it's called Beyond the Labyrinth in Search of John Dowland. And he was a successful musician and court composer in the era of Elizabeth I. She refused to hire him because she thought he was an obstinate papist. Um, but he worked for some of the English nobility and then in the royal court of Denmark for King Christian IV. Um, he was fired from there in 1606 and then worked for King James I. King James I was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who inherited the throne um, from Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, so he worked for King James, the Dowland worked for King James until his death in 1926. Uh, Dowland was like an interesting guy, traveled around, very popular music writer. He performed a number of espionage assignments for Sir Robert Cecil in France and Denmark. Um, his music sort of reflected, I guess, this trend towards melancholy music and lyrics. Um, and his, his influences were also like the dances of the time and, and what was called consort songs. So con consort music was, just means instrumental music. So that was their entertainment. Was they had instrumental music and they'd do these funny little dances. Um, and so it enjoyed a lot of popularity, that type of music, in the households of the wealthy people in the Elizabethan era. Um, and so most of his music was written for lute. That was his main instrument or small ensembles. And a few of his major works had wonderful titles like Come Heavy Sleep, The Image of True Death, Seven Tears, A Pilgrim's Solace. Um, and he wrote a, 
a piece with a title, Always Dowland, Always Doleful, like a little play on his own name. Um, and the poet Richard Barnfield wrote that Dowland's heavenly touch upon the lute doth ravish human sense. And one person that thinks that Dowland's work is heavily... <laughs> one person that thinks that Dowland's has a heavenly touch and doth ravish human sense is Sting. Sting took an interest in the work of John Dowlin and recorded a number of his songs, including one of his best songs called In Darkness, Let Me Dwell. Um, that song was dubbed by Sting's lutenist as the best song ever written in the English language. Um, I don't know. I thought of playing Sting's version for you. It's not a hit, but it is so utterly nauseating. I just couldn't do that to you. Uh, he butchers it so badly, like he just puckers up and sort of is all breathy. No, I will play you a version which conveys how it should be sung. Um, and here's another one that's on my funeral playlist. This is, where have I got it here? In Darkness, Let Me Dwell. And it's sung by Ellen... Hargan, she often sings with Vancouver New Music.
Hi, that was Ellen Hargis singing In Darkness Let Me Dwell by John Dowland. So the Early Music Society of BC is putting on um, Beyond the Labyrinth in Search of John Dowland. That's this Friday, August 2nd at 8 p.m. at the Roy Barnett Con- Recital Hall, UBC School of Music, 6361 Memorial Road. And they usually have a pre-concert talk. Beforehand, there is more I want to tell you about the Early Music Society Summer Festival, but I just ran out of time. I did say I would talk about the Powell Street Festival, um, but you will have to look at the website, powellstreetfestival.com. It's this Saturday, August 3rd, and Sunday, August 4th, all day long. So um, they're co-presenting the lesbian opera When the Sun Comes Out and also Yamantaka Sonic Titan, but they've got events all day long like dance um fashion shows tons of food carts serving japanese food um so it's just a wonderful uh, wonderful festival as many people know it's very popular and it's so it's a did I say it was at Oppenheimer Park one of the things that I intend to do is the Powell Street walking tour um Vancouver has a, a history um of Japanese immigrants and an unfortunate history of interning uh, Japanese people in the Second World War. Um, so, oh, the tour is being guided in Japanese. I think there's probably an English one as well. So it costs ten dollars. Um, on this historical tour of Powell Street, we'll, we'll take you back in time to the pre-war bustling community of Japanese Canadians who lived and worked in the area. Um, They grew and thrived over a 50-year period from the 1890s to its abrupt end with the internment of Japanese Canadians during World War II. Uh, So the tours are 90 to 120 minutes. So you can sign up for that at the festival. Um, So don't miss the Powell Street Festival. I know I will not miss it um, because it's going to be lots of fun. So I think it's like I have to go or you probably want me to go right now. Um... But thank you for tuning in. And I'm just going to pull up a song to play you out. Um, Please like our Facebook page. Megan, I tried to take a Facebook holiday. Megan's like, you have to come back on. I'm back on. Um, Twitter, you can follow us at CITR underscore arts report. We also often post reviews and content at CITR.ca. I'll be back yet again August 7th, so join us then for more great arts events around Vancouver, including Rosanna Raymond, who will talk to us about Paradise Lost, contemporary works from the South Pacific. That shows on uh, starting now at the Satellite Gallery and at the MOA uh, Museum. So I'll leave you with a song by Kenny Starr. She's performing this Friday, August 2nd at the Roundhouse as part of the Queer Arts Festival. It's her official album launch concert. And this is her song, All Right. So thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you next week. Have a great evening.
Latin Summerfest is firing up the drums and dance floors on Sunday, August 18th at Trout Lake Park. Vancouver's hottest family fun features Tobasco, Nova Sol, Eddie de Pont, and Adones Puentes. For details, go to latinsummerfest.com. My name is Natasha. I am a robot now. I am playing with my breast again. Nothing to do, nothing to do. Sometimes I listen to Misery Hour with Hans Close Wednesday at 11 before midnight. I don't think I like it.